When we get to heaven, there's going to be the judgment seat of Christ. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5 and 10, for we must all appear, all of the body of Christ, before the judgment seat of everyone, Christ. They pretty much said, get everyone here that you can. So, sorry, a little emotional after uh, hearing the intensity of the video, but uh, and the audio calls there. And it's an urgent decision because to delay makes the right decision harder. Indecision in itself is a choice. Not to decide is to decide not to. One of the goals um, in uh, sharing this particular series that I have of the messages that I've been giving has been to uh, make you aware of things that the Bible predicts are going to happen in what it calls the last days of time. I want to, I want to be real clear with you that the, the world is not going to be annihilated. Everybody is not going to, to perish. You know, there are some prophets out there, so-called prophets, that are saying these kinds of things, that everything's coming to an end. Uh, what's coming to an end is the way things have been. But what's coming after that is going to be glorious. It's going to be fabulous when God sets up his eternal kingdom. So um, I, I have been trying to share with you the things that the Bible says will, will come just before this transition into Christ's kingdom upon the earth, things that the Bible says will take place. And I do realize that some of the things that I've been sharing can be a little bit frightening to people and until maybe you realize that there is a way out of the judgment and out of the consequences that we've been talking about on Sunday morning, especially the last couple of weeks. Because, and this is really what I want you to understand. It's very important that you understand this. Jesus Christ came to earth for this purpose. He came to deliver you from God's judgment by taking that judgment upon himself, and he did that on the cross. So when we talk about judgments at the end of time, you need to understand those judgments are upon the enemies of God, not upon God's church, not upon the believers. It's very important that you understand that if you are not currently a Christian or a part of God's kingdom, you, in other words, you have not made Jesus your Savior and Lord, you can do that. And if you do that, if you make that decision, then the sacrifice of Christ on the cross took God's judgment in your place. So you don't have to have the judgment of God fall upon you. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21 says, God took the sinless Christ and poured into him our sins. So poured into Jesus our sins. Then in exchange, he poured into us God's goodness, God's righteousness. So you say, well, nobody's righteous, and that is true. None of us are righteous. But we are made righteous in God's eyes because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. And when we accept him, then all of the judgment against our sin is transferred off of us and was put on Jesus on that cross 2,000 years ago. It goes from us today back to Jesus on that cross 2,000 years ago. And it doesn't come onto us. And, but what we get in exchange is this incredible righteousness of God being placed within us. And so if you have made that decision, you are righteous before God 
in God's eyes. Isn't that amazing? You're made right before God. You are a saint. Now, maybe your wife told you this week, you ain't no saint. And, and, and that may be true and from a natural point of view, but you are made a saint in God's eyes. Hallelujah. You know, that's kind of like someone paying off your debt. I don't know if you've ever been in debt so deep that you just could, could see no way out. Let's say that was true. You had debt so high, no way you could pay this debt off. And all of a sudden, you find out that somebody else paid it off for you. And you stand back absolutely amazed. It's not their debt. They didn't create the debt. It's not their fault. But you get this notice in the mail that says, debt canceled, paid in full. And you wonder to yourself, how in the world can this be? It, it, it's undeserved. It's over the top. But there it is. It's paid off. And that's what God did for us in Jesus. He paid the debt for our sin. One song says he paid a debt he didn't owe. I owed a debt I couldn't pay. I needed a way out. Jesus Christ is the one who paid that. And God offers this, this, uh, this uh, way for our sin debt to be canceled. And all we have to do is accept that. All we have to do is make Jesus our Savior and Lord. So you don't have to be afraid of what is to come upon the earth because if you have given your life to Jesus, if you have committed yourself fully to him, if you have made him the Lord and the Savior of your life, the judgment for your sin is gone. Praise God for that. Amen? Praise God for that. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and this is prophetic scriptures in the context of prophetic scripture, talking about end time events. He says, God did not appoint us to suffer, God, to suffer wrath, that is God's judgment, but he, he appointed us, he made us objects to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. So when you do that, you're not under God's wrath or judgment anymore. And that's why the gospel is called the good news. That's incredible good news. Don't ever get numb to the fact that you are clean before God. Don't ever like get to the point where, oh, okay, that's something, you know. Thank God for it. Just be thrilled. I mean, it's the best thing that could have ever happened to you. Amen? Amen. So the judgment is gone. But having said that, that while there's no judgment on believers, there is judgment coming to the world. There is judgment coming to this earth. For those who are not ready for the rapture of the church, and we talked about that the last two weeks, the Bible says they will go into a time of judgment here on earth called the Great Tribulation. And this is what Jesus said of that particular time, that Great Tribulation, Matthew 24, 21. For then there will be a great distress unequal distress from the beginning of the world until now and never will it happen to this degree again that's how serious this this great tribulation period will be and this great tribulation what jesus is talking about will start after the rapture of the church takes place and all true believers in jesus christ are taken off are raptured off of this planet, the event of the great 
tribulation or the event of the rapture, I should say, will set into motion then the chaos that will trigger this seven-year period of judgment called the Great Tribulation. Now, the point of the message today is to tell you about six prominent uh, individuals or players who will rise to, to great prominence in the world. They will dominate the world scene during this great tribulation. I want you to be aware of who these people are and what their role will be during this seven-year period of time. And I do want you to know that I was greatly influenced by a book that I read by David Jeremiah entitled The Agents of the Apocalypse. And that was the inspiration behind the message that I'm giving you this morning. So number one, the martyrs. There are going to be martyrs. There are martyrs today. There are going to be martyrs. Revelation 6 verse 9 says, When the Lamb, that's speaking of Jesus, when he broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. So who are the martyrs? Well, to answer that question, let me tell you what Scripture teaches us about how God is working in the world today, through whom he is working today, and how he will work after the rapture in the world at that time. I want you to understand how, how the, the differences. In today's world, the focus of God's activity, the focus of God working today is through his church. His church is not an organization. His church is a living organism. And it's alive by the power of the spirit that comes to dwell inside individuals. So you are not a part of a, you can be a part of an organization by signing a, a dotted line. You are not part of the kingdom of God. You're not part of the church of Jesus Christ by signing a dotted line. You are part of the church of Jesus Christ only by making him your savior that is to ask him to forgive you of your sins and to make him your Lord, which means he is the boss of your life. You're going to live for him from this moment on. When you do that, his spirit comes to live within you and you become a part of a living organism called in the Bible, the church of Jesus Christ. That church is is the method, if you will, that God is using to get the message of the gospel all around the world today. And we do it primarily by sending people out into the uttermost parts of the earth. We do it by, uh, by being witnesses in our daily lives to our neighbors and our co-workers. We do it through prayer. Some of you are uh, intensive uh, intercessor pray, intercessive prayers. And, and intercession and prayer is you are fueling the power behind the witness by the prayers that you are but that you are making. And, and so this is how God is doing it in today's world, in 2015. But after the rapture of the church, whenever that will take place, God's working in the world will be redirected back to the nation of Israel. Now I say back to the nation of Israel, but because before the church was created about 2,000 years ago by Jesus, God used the nation of Israel as the primary way he communicated 
the reality of his love to the rest of the world. He did that. He, he used them. They were to be witnesses for his glory. Now, they failed terribly in that mission. And that's why they came under judgment over and over again, if you've read the Old Testament. That's what happened to them. But after Jesus came and he died and rose again, sent his spirit to live within people, he created this thing called the church. And the church then becomes um, the, the focal point of his moving and of his working in the lives of men and women throughout the world today. But after the church is gone, the nation of Israel is going to again assume the position of being the, the major, it, the major uh, way that God communicates his plan and his power and his spirit to the world. And so we are told by the Apostle Paul in Romans 11, 25, and 26 that when the church is raptured, God will bring salvation to the Jews. In fact, he says in the scripture that the spiritual blindness that has rested upon the Jewish people for centuries by their own choice, this blindness has come upon them, that's going to be miraculously lifted by the power of God and many of them will come to an understanding and an acknowledgement that Jesus Christ is in a is, is it truly the Messiah, that he is the one they've been looking for, and they will receive him as Messiah and Savior and Lord of their lives. Now, that's the good news of what's going to happen right after the rapture of the church. Many, of, many Jewish people are going to be set free from their sins and be brought into the kingdom of God. But this time of the great tribulation is also called in scripture the time of Jacob's trouble. Jacob is the forefather of the Jewish nation, Israel. In fact, his name was Jacob and God changed his name to Israel. That's where the name Israel comes from. It was Jacob's name first. God changed his name when he placed this covenant upon him to Israel. Okay, so it's going to be a time of Jacob's trouble, a time of trouble for Israel. Zechariah chapter 13 verse 8 predicts that two-thirds of the Jewish population is going to be killed during this great tribulation. They're going to be martyred during this tribulation. And no doubt many of them will be martyred, will be killed for their faith in Jesus Christ. So the martyrs that are talked about in the book of Revelation are those who are killed for their faith in Christ during the tribulation period. So it's exciting that people will still come to Jesus during the great tribulation. The heartbreak of all of that is that many of them will pay for this with their lives. Because of their refusal to receive Christ now, they'll, move, they'll go into the great tribulation. They make the choice then and it will, it will be with their lives. Number two, a group of people called the 144,000. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 4 says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, and they did not blow on the earth or the sea or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God, and he shouted to those four angels who had been given power to harm land and sea. 
wait, don't harm the land, don't harm the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of our servants, of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel. So this scripture is telling us that 12,000 Jews from each of the 12 tribes of Israel will be sealed by God. Those of you who are great in math know that 12,000 times 12 is 144,000 people. And Revelation chapter 14 verse 1 says that the seal that they will receive is the name of the Father written on their foreheads. And this name, this seal, will serve to protect these 144,000 from coming judgments that will be upon the earth. Now, the work of the 144,000 will be evangelistic in nature. I don't know if you understand that word or not, but that means they will be out sharing Jesus Christ everywhere they go. The Spirit of God will direct them to take the message all over the world. So they're going to be witnesses for Christ all over the world. And they're going to be sharing Christ as Savior and Lord all over the world to testify of Jesus. And because of these 144,000, there will be a great multitude, the Bible says, of nations and tribes and tongues of all kinds of people who will be saved out of the great tribulation. And so the great tribulation becomes a, 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 an opportunity for many people to acknowledge the power of God, to see the power of God, and to continue to open their hearts to the testimony of Jesus that comes from these miraculous 144,000 sealed set-apart Jewish people who have been changed, their eyes have been opened, they've received the message of Christ, they're born again, and now they're new people and they're witnessing for Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Isn't God's grace amazing? You're going to go all around the world with these people. Then there's another group that the book of Revelation talks about, and they're smaller in number, but they're called the two witnesses. So you got the 144,000 witnesses, Now we're going to have two witnesses that are going to be different from the 144,000. After the rapture of the church, we know that only those who are not ready for the rapture will remain on earth. All those who are ready, who were truly born again, those people will be taken off the planet and will be raptured away. We talked about that the last two weeks. But those who are left behind will be those who were not ready for the rapture. And the Bible identifies two groups of people will not be, not be ready. First of all, it'll be a group of people called the spiritually cold. The spiritually cold are people who are not interested in God whatsoever. Or they have bought into a false religion. And they believe a false religion. So those who are spiritually cold are those who have no relationship with God whatsoever. That's obvious. They're not going to be ready for the rapture. The second group is a group called the spiritually lukewarm. We talked about it this last week. And the lukewarm are people who have a, an outward spiritual kind of um, um, uh, uh, an appearance, so to speak. You, you look at them, they, they seem very Christianized. They speak Christianese. You know what I mean? You know, they can say all the right words that make it sound so right. But their hearts aren't redeemed. They aren't truly born again. And the lukewarm and the cold will not go in the, in the rapture of the church. 
We talked about that last week. Revelation 11, verses 3 through 6, talks about these two witnesses. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1,260 days. These two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes, down, flashes from their mouths and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. And they have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. Some of the Old Testament prophets did the same thing. You know, so this is not new stuff. God's been doing this in the past. And they have the power to turn the rivers and the oceans into blood. Again, that happened in the Old Testament. And to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they wish. So these, these two witnesses are going to be uniquely different from the 144,000 in that they're going to be giving testimony of Christ to all of these spiritually cold and lukewarm people. Uh, they're going to be giving testimony of Christ primarily through the, the appearance of, of great signs and wonders. They're... I mean, it, it's going to be powerful how God moves in and through their lives. But their primary job will be, during the Great Tribulation, to be prophets of God to the world during the first part of this Great Tribulation. The Great Tribulation is seven years uh, in length. So for the first three and a half years, that's the time that these two witnesses will be functioning. And according to, to verse 3, um, they will have a message that consists of five particular themes. First of all, they will declare Jesus Christ as, as Messiah, as Savior, as Lord, as the only way to get to, to God, however they put it. Have you noticed how many people have no problem believing in God? But when you get to the point that you say, yeah, but Jesus is the only way to get to God, that's when they get ticked. I mean, even if you bring Jesus up, God, yeah, that's all right. But talk about Jesus, that's very offensive. And so, you know, our culture's trying to get Christ out of Christmas. Kind of hard to get Christ out of the word Christmas, you know. Uh, but we've been trying to do that for years and years and years. And, we're, and, it's, and it's happening a lot. We don't want to talk about Jesus Christ. These, these two witnesses are going to declare him as Savior and Lord and Messiah. Number two, they will declare the sins of the people. This is going to make them real popular with everybody, you know. Number three, they're going to declare the coming judgments of God. Again, it's going to make them real popular. Then fourthly, they're going to decry the claims of the Antichrist because the Antichrist will be making all kinds of very persuasive and powerful statements that people will want to hear. It'll sound logical, it'll sound believable, They'll su he'll suck people in, and these two witnesses are going to go around and say, don't, don't believe what he says. I don't know how they're going to do it, but they're going to stand against his message as a false message. So they make the Antichrist mad at them. And then number five, their message will be to declare the coming judgments upon Jerusalem specifically, upon the city of Jerusalem. Now, along with their powerful message that ticks everybody off, these two witnesses will inflict three plagues. <laughs> so if the first category didn't make everybody mad, the second category really will make people mad. And, um, but what you have to understand is that these plagues that, that I'm going to mention 
are actually examples of God's grace to try to draw people to himself. All of these power movements of God are meant to draw people to the truth and the reality of what the witnesses are talking about. And the first, the first plague they will bring is called the plague of death. That's mentioned in Revelation 7 and 9. The second plague will be the plague of drought, which is Revelation 11, 6. And the third plague will be the plague of disease, which is Revelation 11, 6 as well. So as you can imagine, the prophetic word doesn't create many friends for them. These, these plagues don't create friends. And so in verse 7 of Revelation 11, it says that the Antichrist, in this verse called the beast, will declare war against them and will kill them in Jerusalem. And get this, for three and a half days, they make their bodies lay there on the street. They don't kill them and bury them. They just leave them lay right there. And I would imagine television cameras are going to be on them because the Bible will say that everybody in the world is going to rejoice over their death. And so these cameras are going to be looking at them there. And, you know, the Romans used to do that. When they would crucify somebody, they'd leave them up there for a long time so that everybody would get the idea of what's going to happen to them if they rebel against Rome. Well, that's what the Antichrist is going to do here. After the three and a half years, he's going to kill these two guys. Now, I told you, or I read the scripture, said anybody came against them, if they tried to, to come against them, they would, fire would come out of their mouths, you know, and destroy those people. But at this particular point, God allows the Antichrist to come against these two men, and he will kill them. Their bodies will be laying there for three and a half days. Um, CNN will be carrying 24-7 coverage. There it'll be. And then this is what happens in Revelation 11, 11 and 12. God breathed life into them and they stood up. And get this, terror struck all who were staring at him. I guess so, you know. You imagine, the, you know, after they're killed, ah, you know, the fun, the mocking and everything that's going to go on, you know, uh, against the, these witnesses of God. And then after three and a half days, all of a sudden, boop, there they are, you know. And that'll shake you just a little bit. And then uh, a voice from heaven calls to the two prophets, come up here, and they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. And you would think that would bring all of them to the Lord. But the Bible says they mock God. They curse God. You say, how, can, how could somebody see something like that and, and curse God? How could that be? And... Um, yeah, I just take you to the Old Testament where Moses went before Pharaoh, remember that? And he demonstrated ten great plagues against the land of Egypt, saying, let, my, let God's people go, and Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And you would think that if a guy had any brains, he would say, hmm, this is bad, this God's powerful, I may want to obey this God, this may work out good for me if I pay attention to Moses, but he just hardened his heart, hardened his heart. That's how people will be. They just harden their hearts against even something that's so obvious. Now, these events are, of course, great events of judgment. But I want you to understand that they're also events where God is trying to get the attention of people to help them to understand that they're on the wrong path. He wants them to be saved. 
Listen, sometimes, even today, God will use difficult things in our lives to get our attention. The biggest mistake you can make is if you use one of those times to come to God, and then once the crisis leaves, you, you go back to your old life. That's the biggest mistake you can make. But if you'll, if you'll allow the, the tragedy or the crisis to draw you to Jesus, it can transform your life, and you'll be saved. Number four, let's talk about this man, the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? It's interesting that there are over 100 passages in Scripture that describe the Antichrist, but the title Antichrist is mentioned only five times in the New Testament, and only one of those times is it referring to the man called the Antichrist. That particular time is found in 1 John chapter 2, verse 18. Let me read this for you. Dear children, the last hour is here, and you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, and already many such Antichrists have appeared. From this we know that the last hour has come. And so that's, you'll, you'll notice here that there's two different references to the Antichrist. One of them has a capital A, the other has a small a. What that's talking about is an individual called the Antichrist and what we might would call the spirit of Antichrist that exists within the world today. And that's the small a. Okay, so the spirit of Antichrist is working in the world. And we see, I mean, we see it in groups like ISIS. You know, that's not, that, that's demonic what those people are doing. How can anybody do that? It's the spirit of Antichrist, you know. And on and on and on you could go with examples of that kind of thing. The spirit of Antichrist is happening. But what the scripture is telling us is that one day the, the spirit of Antichrist that fills the world today will be concentrated in just one man called the Antichrist. Now, he's not going to call himself that. And his followers won't call him that, but that's what God's word, the Bible, calls him. Anti means against. He's against God. He's against godliness. He's against anything about Jesus Christ. This is how the book of Revelation introduces him in chapter 13, verse 1. Then I saw a beast rising up out of the sea. That beast, of course, is the Antichrist. And when it says sea here, we're not talking about a sea of water, but it's, a, it's symbolic of the sea of nations is coming. And it had seven heads and ten horns, which is talking about its power, dominion, and the ten crowns on its horns, and written on each of them were names that blaspheme God. So it lets you know a little bit about the character of the Antichrist. He will embody an incredible amount of charm and charisma, and, and he will pers persuade the world to follow him. And we see that already in leaders in the world today who through persuasive and cunning and crafty words, are able to get the masses of people to follow them, to vote for them, when they have no qualification for being with, in the office that they're in. But their, their charm and their charisma is what makes it happen. That's going to happen in this man called the Antichrist times 10, times 100, times 1,000, I don't know. But he will be a wolf in sheep's clothing, he will be, in reality, the embodiment of evil and very anti-God. Now, there's a lot that the Scripture tells us about Antichrist, but I don't have time. So let me just give you the, the Reader's Digest version of the Antichrist, okay? The, we'll hit the main points here. Number one, he'll create and become the head of a one-world government system. So the nations of the world will give to him their power. 
and he will consolidate this power in the first three and a half years of the tribulation and will take firm control during the second three and a half years. He'll be in firm control in the second three and a half years. Number two, because of that, he'll control a vast military and have great military might. He'll be able to crush any uprising that comes against him. Number three, in that capacity, he will make a peace treaty with Israel and act as Israel's protector. Again, a wolf in sheep's clothing. Number four, he'll allow a worldwide religion to grow that worships him. And in fact, he will persecute uh, anyone. He will kill anyone who does not worship him. That's how serious this will become. Number five, he will then break the peace treaty that he has made with Israel and will go so far as to set up his image in the Jewish temple that has been constructed and will force people to worship that image. And then number six, my favorite part, he will be defeated by the second coming of Jesus Christ and hallelujah, and will be cast alive into the lake of fire, Revelation chapter 20. 2 Thessalonians 2 verses 9 and 10 summarize this man in this particular scripture called the lawless one. It says the coming of the lawless one will be in accordance with how Satan works. He will use all sorts of displays of power, do signs, wonders that serve the lie. And all the ways that wickedness deceives those who are perishing, they, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Go to another individual called the false prophet. And I'm just about done. Revelation 13. Then I saw another beast come up out of the earth. Okay, this beast is like the right-hand man for the first beast. The first beast is Antichrist. This beast is called the false prophet. He had two horns like that of a lamb, but he spoke with the voice of a dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast, and he required all the earth and its people to worship the first beast though, whose fatal wound had been healed. I'm not going to get into that part. We'll, we'll, we'll not deal with that today about the fatal wound being healed. He did astounding miracles, even making the uh, fire flash down from, uh, to the earth from the sky while everyone was watching. And with all the miracles he was allowed to perform on behalf of the first beast, what it says he was allowed to perform, that means God's in control. And he's allowing it, all right, to serve his purposes. Never forget, God never loses control. He's allowing this to happen. He, he does it on behalf of the first beast. He deceives the people who belong to this world. He orders the people to make a great statue of the first beast and all, who was fatally wounded and then came back to life. And he was then permitted to give life to this statue so that it could speak. Isn't that amazing? Then the statue of the beast commanded that anyone refusing to worship it must die. It won't use those words initially. But down the line, it'll start saying things like that. So this false prophet will be the head of a worldwide false demonic religious system that everyone will be required to worship, to be a part of. And it will target anyone who is coming to faith in Christ of the 144,000 or by these two witnesses. It will target those people and kill them. And he will do this through deception of counterfeit miraculous signs and wonders. Number six, my favorite part. Amen? Yeah, the victor. I once heard a pastor encourage his church because a number of the people were going through a particularly rough time. 
And I've been in the ministry long enough to see when sometimes when people go through a really rough time, they, they, uh, they walk away from God. And this particular pastor's church was going through a particularly rough time. Some of the people were. And he, he encouraged them with these words. I've read the back of the book, and we win. Never forget it, brothers and sisters. Read the back of the book. We win. The victor is in the back of the book. Let's wrap this up by looking at Revelation 19. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. And coming out of his mouth is a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. I tell you what, the imams in, in Iran are not in charge. The, 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 the whoever's in, whoever the group is in, in, in Russia is not in charge. Putin is not in charge of this world. The Congress and the, and the President of the United States are not in charge. There's a God in heaven who is going to rule and is going to reign. Hallelujah. He'll strike down the nations and he will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Hallelujah. Give him praise this morning. Here at Life Church, we pray that you have a blessed week. Please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, or you can always go to lifechurchutah.com.